Welcome, everybody. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be tonight. That's where we're going to be starting out and spending most of our time. Um, last week, if you weren't here, uh, I just want to give you a little bit of recap of what, of what we talked about. Uh, Brian Howard uh, preached. I was, uh, I, my name is Brian Williams, by the way, if you don't know who I am. I'm Brian Williams. The other guy who preaches up here, his name's Brian Howard. So it's real easy. Just say Brian, and one of us will respond. Uh, Brian spoke about uh, the spiritual realities of life. And from the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And these two distinct uh, realms of the, r- the r- real, <laughs> the physical and the spiritual are not divorced from one another. But the physical is literally constructed with the spiritual, and they are intertwined with one another. You know, last week, as Sarah talked about, we also launched the 21 days of fasting, and Brian spoke about this, this spiritual and physical melding within reality, and and it was to set up the fast. It it was to set up uh, what we were doing with this fast, but also what we're talking about this week and the following weeks. You know, last week, we laid the foundation for the spiritual realities of our everyday lives, and it sets up where we're going on this important discussion, a very important discussion about spiritual warfare. This is a war that is waged on all fronts, and it has physical and eternal impacts. It is a war over human flourishing, and under the weight of this war, creation is literally groaning. It's longing for the triumphant king to take charge. Our corporate fast, this 21 days of fasting, and the discussion on spiritual warfare that we're going to be doing over these few weeks, it's not coincidental. It's entirely on purpose. Because fasting is a physical practice that in some mysterious way shapes and impacts spiritual conditions. So this physical action has a spiritual impact and quite logically spiritual realities have physical implications. And despite the mystery that lies beyond the atoms, uh, scripture gives us what we need in order to engage in the fullness of the reality of life the spiritual and the physical, all of it. And that might mean some of us need our lens with which we view this world shaped and transformed and and changed a little bit. Maybe we don't see this world as it really is. Maybe we we do see it just as atoms, but there is more there. And there's a whole lot going on there. And it has power and it has an impact on who you are, on how you walk, on what your life looks like, on how this world operates and in a massive way, on what your future looks like, especially your future on the other side of death. This is, this is a big deal. Thankfully, God gives us what we need to engage in the battle, to push back the spiritual forces of darkness that oppose the kingdom of God. Fasting, of course, fits right into all of this. It's one of our tools. It's one of our weapons in the battle. And so if you're fasting, if you're joining in on that, you are fighting over these next 21 days or 14. Depends on where you started. So if you haven't started fasting, it's certainly not too late. And if you already are in it, I just want to encourage you, this shouldn't be a one-time experiment. But this is a physical tool with spiritual power, and it can be used in any season, whenever you need that extra power. (laughs) Yeah. Tonight... 
Uh, I'm going to continue the conversation about the spiritual realities of life. And as I said, we're going to look at John 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to there. We're going to start in verse 33. Uh, to set it up a little bit for you, Jesus is about to be crucified. But before that happens, uh, because they didn't have the authority to execute people, the Jewish leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate, who's, who's a Roman governor. Uh, he's over that region. And they bring him to, to Pilate to ask him to do it for them because they don't have the authority to do it. And what we're about to read is a snippet of Pilate's conversation with Jesus as he's trying to decide what to do in this situation. So verse 33, we read, Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So this conversation, this dialogue between Jesus and Pilate it's being had about kings and kingdoms. And Pilate goes back out to the Jewish leaders saying he doesn't find a reason to crucify him. Of course, the leaders, they, they rile the crowd and Pilate decides to give in to their requests in order to keep the peace. You know, like what's one innocent man's life to keep the peace or to keep his political adversaries, his political opponents off his back? What a massive decision. What an important decision. You know, unbeknownst to Pilate, he fulfills what God had planned from the very beginning. And his discussion here with Jesus is about the claim of kingship, right? He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so Pilate's like, oh, so you are king. All right. We're getting somewhere. And here Jesus just shifts gears a bit. And it's like, it's like Pilate's talking about kingship in a way that is in, on an entirely different level than Jesus. It's different than he's talking about. His kingdom is so beyond what Pilate is referencing that Jesus words it in another way to try and get Pilate to understand, to, to communicate the essence of his kingdom. And basically what he says is, I am truth. His kingdom is the kingdom of truth. Pilate, right, annoyed by this whole situation, just retorts and dismisses what Jesus said with, what is truth? Man, that's a jaded man. He was certainly jaded. He couldn't even fathom that truth was literally standing right in front of him. Like, the, the sad thing for me is as I read this, even as I was thinking about this, it's like, I want to just be like, Pilate, you fool. What an idiot. But then I'm like, ah, oh, man. I can't do that without like unhypocritically judging Pilate and realizing I would do the same thing. I have done the same thing at times. Like, I, why is Pilate so thick-headed? The real question is, why am I so thick-headed? 
And all I have to hope in, all I have to thank is God's mercy and grace. Lord, thank you that you are so kind to me, that you put up with me, because I'm kind of an idiot sometimes. I don't, I don't know if you... I, yeah, yeah, I am. Austin knows. Yeah, he's experienced it. Man. So, anyway. You might be thinking, why are we reading this? Why, why did I bring us to this passage? Why are we talking about kingdom? Because the topic of the kingdom of God is so important to this whole subject of spiritual warfare and the spiritual reality of our lives. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is a major theme throughout the history of God's engagement with humanity. If you've read through the Bible, you will see it all throughout. In the Old Testament, the kingdom theme of God's purposes and his plans is progressively revealed. And, and in time, it's eventually understood, but not really. People don't really get it, just like Pilate, just like me at times, just like many of you probably. Then we have John the Baptist. He's the forerunner of Jesus. And he came preaching, look, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was preaching this, this message of repentance. And then Jesus steps into the spotlight. And even then, Jesus, the king himself, is present. The nature of the kingdom was it manifest in front of everybody. And yet it was misunderstood by most. It caused great confusion when Jesus came saying, I'm the king and yet he came in such gentleness and humility. He was associating with the least, the last, and the lost. And then especially once he surrendered himself over to death on a Roman cross, like what kind of kingdom could this be? What kind of king could he actually be? But all of this was the perfect expression of the kingdom and was actually the crowning moment of human history, the moment when the shackles that held us back from the kingdom were unlocked. Like sin and death stood no chance. Post-resurrection, when uh, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the followers of Jesus started connecting the dots. They started understanding the sort of kingdom Jesus was inaugurating. And then the theme of God's kingdom persists through the teachings of the apostles and the lives of the followers of, of the way, as it was called. That's what, that's what Christians were called, the way. They were followers of the way. And they formed the early church. Most notably, they they carried on this theme of the kingdom with the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that was a big deal, especially in a Roman empire, to say Jesus is Lord. In your Bibles, that L in Lord is capitalized because it's not like your everyday Lord. <laughs> he is the ultimate Lord. He is the supreme Lord. Here in this interaction with Jesus, he says that his kingdom is not of this world, but it's from another place. And then he links himself and his kingdom to truth. So what does this all mean, right? Okay, so I'm talking about the kingdom. Apparently the kingdom's important. It's all throughout scripture, but what does it mean? What is this kingdom that he's speaking of? I think this is so important. As we move towards spiritual warfare and, and the other spiritual dynamics of life, because the kingdom concept reflects the reality within which we engage with spiritual forces. To understand the battle, we must understand the nature of the kingdoms that are warring. And it is essential to align ourselves to what it is we are fighting for before we talk about what it is we're fighting against. Why are we even fighting? What is it that we're even fighting for? 
So what is the kingdom of God? That's our question tonight. What is the kingdom of God? And I'm going to start, even like, what is a kingdom in general? <laughs> like, anybody ever lived in a kingdom? You know, anybody from England? Maybe. Even then, it's not really, there's dynamics there. That's, kingdoms aren't a part of our everyday life. And so I've defined kingdoms for us by uh, these three things, authority, territory, and principles. Authority, territory, and principles. As we talk about these three components of the kingdom, I'll touch on the not-of-this-world realities of the kingdom of God. And so let's step in. Authority. Authority. A kingdom is about authority. And this is probably the, the actually, you could almost define a kingdom solely by this. It is authority. A kingdom has a sovereign. It has a ruler. There is submission to that ruler. And the truth about a kingdom is that the authority prevails whether you embrace the authority or even if you reject the authority. They still have it. Perhaps the best definition of a kingdom is the word reign. R-E-I-G-N, reign. Synonyms for this word are supremacy, sovereignty, control, rule. Like a, like a kingdom is principally not defined by a realm or a people, by, but by the one who has authority, the one who reigns. And in this way, the kingdom creates a people. It creates a realm or a domain, but the kingdom is not synonymous with its domain or its people, but, but with the one who wields the authority. God's kingdom is centrally about God's authority. His kingdom is that which falls under his authority. He reigns over all things, all things, because he created all things. And in him and by, the, by him, all things hold together. And so this is why Jesus has that title, if you've ever heard of it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because there is not a kingdom or a king that rules over him. He has preeminence in all things, and at all times, he reigns supreme. You know, a great place to get some perspective on this is Job 38 through 40. God responds to Job's questions and accusations with, with what has really become like pages of rhetorical questions. If you open your Bible to these three, chapter, three chapters, it's, it's pages of just rhetorical questions. For, for 39 chapters, the chapters weren't there when it was originally written, but now we have the chapters, so it gives some context of how long. 39, 37 chapters, sorry. 37 chapters, Job and his friends are just talking about God. They're questioning him. They're throwing accusations at him. And then God steps in and for three chapters just asks rhetorical questions. And they go something like this. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? I like that one. Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead a bear with its cubs out of its den? Do you know the laws of the heavens? He goes on and on just asking these questions that just, of course, nobody can answer, but just say like, no, I can't. You can though. Yeah, I can't. You can though, right? Like, he is king. He is in charge. Nobody, 
Nobody is above him. <laughs> so, if nobody's above him, if he created all things, if he's the king of kings and lord of lords, if he has authority literally over the, every atom that ever existed, how can it be that we see a world where God's authority can be rejected? where sin and evil and wickedness seep from our very own hearts and seem woven into the fabric of society and history. Like, how can this stuff exist in the midst of his kingdom? How can Jesus be subject to the decisions of a regional governor? Like, what? See, God created all things and is sovereign over all things. Yet in his love, he has not forced the fullness of his authority over his creation. At least not yet. He has left room for free will to exist, that we may choose to submit to his reign and respond to his love. This is an exercise of self-control. You ever thought about that, that God has self-control? It's an exercise of self-control that leaves room for authentic, uncoerced, mutual sharing of love and joy. But it also, also allows for gaps in his reign. There's space, there's opportunity for disloyalty to the kingdom of the creator. Which brings us to where we are now. And it brings us to our second point, too, so that worked out well. Second one is territory. Territory. This is a realm, an area of rule or domain, anywhere the authority prevails, right? The territory of a kingdom is not limited to a specific ge geographic location, like we might think with, like, the Byzantines or the Mesopotamians or something like that, right? The things we learned about in school. Like, we always think of a map, right? I, I do, at least. When I think of a kingdom, it's like, oh, well, wherever those lines are drawn, that's the kingdom. And, and while that does apply, that's too simplistic for what a kingdom actually is, or what the territory of the kingdom actually exists. See, it is defined by submission to the authority of the king. And so in this way, a subject of the kingdom may be in a distant land and yet still be within the kingdom because they would still be subject to the king no matter where they are or where they live. We see this today with ambassadors, right? Like, like these are people who live and work in foreign lands, but are they subject to the laws and the authority of those lands only secondarily? They are first and foremost subject to the authority of their home country, even though they might live in New York. They're like, no, nah, the PM of France, of France, <laughs> PM of France. That's who I report to. Wow, talking's hard. Right? So the territory of a kingdom is anywhere or anyone where the authority of that kingdom prevails. And I want you to hear that again. Anywhere or anyone where the kingdom, where the authority of that kingdom prevails. See, while God is Lord of all, he has given us the opportunity to respond to him to submit ourselves to his reign out of our own free will. And thus our, and thus our submission is one of love, not coercion. And this creates distinct territories. 
It creates places where there is God's authority reigning and places where it has been dismissed. While he has authority over all things, he does not exercise that authority, again, at least not yet, in its fullness. So there is the territory of the kingdom of God and that which is outside of his kingdom. These are the only two kingdoms. His kingdom and that which is not his. If you are a follower of Christ, we are perpetually submitting ourselves to his reign, becoming the territory of his kingdom and carrying the territory of his kingdom. We let him redeem us and transform us into the radiant members of his kingdom that we were each designed to be. And this submission to him is imperfect. I'm imperfect. But thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and grace. That you have linked your perfect kingdom to me, this imperfect idiot. Right? What a marvelous thing. Only grace and mercy would do such a thing. It's the only way I can enter into a perfect kingdom or participate on any level. He is merciful and gracious. And so we got to continue to pray, Lord, continue your good work. Continue the work you started. Continue the work in each one of us that you've called us to. Despite our imperfection, though, the kingdom of God is literally strapped to our heels. This is what it means, the territory of the kingdom of God. This is how God's kingdom, the territory of God's kingdom is defined. It's strapped to your heels. Anywhere you go, the kingdom of God is manifest because you are the king's subject. You submit to his authority, and so you bring his authority. You bring the kingdom with you wherever you go. And this is magnified all the more because we have the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have been made into an earthly temple of the Lord God Most High where the things of God are manifest on this world. That all happens in us and through us. This brings us to our third descriptor of a kingdom, and that is principles. Kingdom is authority, it is territory, and it is principles. Principles are laws, they are values, they are ethics, they are ideals. And every kingdom has within it virtues that are consistent with the values of the king. See, God is the one enthroned for all eternity. He laid the foundations of the heavens and the earth. And who he is constitutes the values of his kingdom. I would say that again, but I think I'm going to stumble over it. (laughs) See, what God is up to and into and all about is what we will see manifest within his kingdom. Where there is submission to his authority, there will be a manifestation of the values and principles of God himself. And so there's a direct correlation between the advancement of God's kingdom in this world and the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. See, where the kingdom of God is, where God reigns, we will see and experience love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There will be salvation and redemption. There will be truth and grace. There will be humility and self-sacrifice because these are the principles, the values, the virtues of the king. And therefore, they are the values and virtues of his subjects. Participation in God's kingdom will have an impact on us and it will have an impact on the world around us. As his subjects, we live out his principles no matter where we are. 
no matter who we're with or what circumstances we find ourselves in, because our allegiance is to the king, and that overrides all other loyalties. Like the principles of a kingdom change everything about its subjects. Everything about its subjects. What is honorable? What is praiseworthy? What constitutes a life well lived? Who am I? Why am I here? When I look at another person, what do I see? What are the motivations for my interactions with them? The kingdom that we belong to impacts how we answer every single one of these questions, and that changes everything about life, everything about how you interact with other people, everything about how people interact with you. The answers to these questions are shaped by the kingdom you belong to. And of course, the principles of the kingdom of God transcends cultural differences or historical timelines. As Jesus said to Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. It is different, altogether different on a whole nother level. His kingdom is eternal. And the battles that the kingdom fights are elemental and transcendent beyond space and time, yet entirely substantive to the, the world of, of our five senses and our momentary thoughts and our relationships. When God is in control, when life and our worldviews align with God's character and principles, and we're in communion with him, having come under his domain, it is in this condition that humanity was designed to flourish. Being subjects of a good king, a personal king, who knows each one of his subjects and loves them dearly. Like the thought of you brings a smile to his face. He loves you. He knows you. And he's the king. This is a kingdom built on and for loving personal relationships. A kingdom of intimacy and mutuality, of laughter and sincerity. The characteristics of God that manifest the principles of his kingdom creates an atmosphere in which bliss and beauty and the sweetest of aromas may be known. Like the kingdom of God is perfect. It's perfect. What, what a wondrous kindness that God extends to those who embrace Jesus, who embrace his death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for our lives. Like what, what a wondrous kindness that we get to breathe in the atmosphere of God's kingdom, and that we are mercifully accepted into it, and wonderfully commissioned to season the world with it. What a wonderful thing. God's kingdom is what we fight for. This is what we are fighting for. We fight to see God's authority advancing and taking territory in the world, in the hearts and lives of ourselves and others, because what God is up to and into and all about is the only thing that is truly good or satisfying. It is only within the realities of his kingdom that we or anyone else may truly flourish. See, God's war has different goals than the wars of earthly kings. That's why Jesus could stand before Pilate, and though Pilate was about to make a decision that would end Jesus' life, Jesus stood there with more authority than Pilate had at all, and with a kingdom that was greater and grander. And the reason Pilate couldn't understand it is because his kingdom was fighting for something entirely different than the kingdoms Pilate knew and understood. Yeah. Entirely different. 
like earthly kings fight for more power and more money and more prestige. God needs none of those things. He wages his war on pure benevolence. Pure benevolence. And what does he get out of it? The joy of seeing you experience and participate in his love. The satisfaction of redeeming and transforming the lives of those who join him. The pleasure of seeing his beloved creation thriving and flourishing. The hope of more of his beloved children walking in eternity with him. This war is on a whole nother level. We're fighting for entirely different things. This war determines human flourishing, the flourishing of human life and relationship on every scale, from the most minute personal detail of your thought life to the overarching storyline of human existence throughout all of history, even into eternity. This is a battle for the flourishing of human beings and all of creation. God's kingdom is what we fight for. So what is it we are fighting against? What other kingdom could oppose his? What other kingdom could even contend with God himself? Well, as I said before, there, there's two kingdoms on this playing field, two value sets, two seats of authority and submission, two territories or domains. And one is God's kingdom, and the other is quite literally anything other than God's kingdom. Yeah. It's that simple. When there is perfection... Anything outside of that is just not perfection. I think many of us even think of sin as something that is like, well, it's like a target with different rings. And it's like, well, I'm getting closer. And that's a good thing to get closer. But ultimately, it's either on or it's not. Sin is when you don't hit it perfectly. I think we're called to something so high, so perfect, that our only hope is to kneel before Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy. And you know what the wonderful thing is? He does. And he fought for you. He did what you couldn't do. He did what I couldn't do so that we may enter into his kingdom, that perfect kingdom. Anything that isn't perfect is outside of God's kingdom and is actually literally opposed to it. It comes in conflict with it. And so we're fighting for perfection, which sounds like, whoa. <laughs> and it is whoa. <laughs> but thankfully, God is on our side. I think we can understand this outside of God's kingdom thing in three ways. Uh, it's anything other than God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of the world or darkness. And it's sin. And these are all kind of synonyms, but you'll see them all throughout Scripture in different ways. They're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about what we're actually fighting against. And how do we fight? Well, we fight in many ways. See, when we live out the righteous principles of the kingdom of God, we are fighting back the darkness, triumphing over sin and advancing the kingdom of God. When we pray with raw honesty and heartfelt intensity, we're inviting God to beat back the lies and deceptions of our enemy, the devil and our own deceitful hearts. And this advances God's kingdom. When we stand firm in the name of Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and trample demons underfoot, God is advancing his kingdom through us. When we behold the joy found in the face of the Lord and rest in his presence, 
a little more darkness gets illuminated. A little more ground is lost to God's kingdom. When we bear each other's burdens and come to one another's defense, we, embodies God, we embody God's character and supplant the kingdom of the world in that moment in time, in that relationship. When we face death, suffering, and have faith in the power of our salvation over that, the greatest weapon of the enemy, death itself, is robbed of its power. And all this because of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Amen? It's not because we are awesome, but because he is. All of these things are because God is awesome and has invited us to participate in his kingdom. What a cool thing. He's so awesome. This is like a side note, but I always thought of awesome like, like the movie Rad. I don't know if you know, 80s BMX movie. You probably know. That's like a deep cut. So anyway, awesome. Like, oh man, that's awesome. I say awesome a lot. But what's really cool is that awesome is like the combination of two words. Awe. When you are in awe of something. When you're like, whoa, you know? And some, it's full of it. It's full of awe. When something is awesome, you come before it and you're just like, whoa. And you're full of awe, entirely full of awe. That is what I mean when I say God is awesome. Everything about him should make us just fall to our knees and be like, whoa, whoa. Everything that he's good, that he's kind, that he's in charge of it all, like he's a big deal. Like everything about him should just make us fall and say, wow, wow. God is awesome. He is so awesome. And this preeminent kingdom of God, this awesome kingdom of God is anywhere God reigns, right? We're covering this. And I'm doing it over and over because we got to get into our minds. We got to get it into our hearts. We got we got to be reminded of these things. I don't just I don't know about you, but I don't just hear something once and go, "Oh yeah, check, ding, I'm good." I got I'm I'm an idiot, right? I have to hear it over and over again. Anywhere he reigns. Ultimately, there is no other kingdom but the kingdom of God because the creator is ultimately sovereign and will cast the ultimate verdict. Here is, our, here is our great hope, that one day he will wipe creation of all that opposes his kingdom. One day, it's kaputz. In this war, the war at the very heart of human history between the kingdom of God and anything other than it, in this war, victory is at hand. The only reason it has not yet been put to rest is because God has not yet chosen to do it. So we, all of us, we continue the fight. We continue to fight in order to see more souls won over to the victor's side. In order to see more people come into the joy and rest and love of the creator. In order to see less people fall into darkness. We fight with God to see his kingdom advance. That is what we fight for. That is why we fight. It's not about who we can trample on, but it's who we can bring in to the light. Yeah. One day, we will come into a place where it won't be a choice. 
where to be in God's kingdom won't be a choice. God will make it clear. Jesus will come back. He'll kind of, you know, talks about him coming in through the clouds, and he'll just kind of be like, all right, it's time. And everybody, everybody, everywhere, spirit, physical, doesn't matter. We'll just sort of go, whoa. And then God will make decisions. And if you've put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for your life, the beautiful, wonderful thing is that God says he will look at you and see his son and say, welcome in. You are my child. You are part of this kingdom. And so we fight that more people may be on that side of the equation. One day it won't be a choice. And so until that day, God's mercy permits that we are in the fight, that together with him we contend with the darkness of this world and ourselves. And we put our whole lives, all our efforts, all of our energy into the battering ram that is dismantling the darkness, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are at war. We are engaged in the, ba- in the battle between light and darkness, perfection and sin. You know, the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about this. That, that there are persons, there are entities that are at work in opposition to God, uh, in opposition even to the God who created them. There are spiritual beings with authority and power and influence that live in contradiction to God and therefore are at war with him. And Satan, the father of lies, is the prince of these demons. He's an angel corrupted by pride and envy who opposes God's rule. And he seeks to wound God's heart by wounding that which he loves, which is us. And so our war, the war that we are fighting is not like the wars for mortal glory that earthly kings and governments today still wage. As it's written in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're going to talk more about all this stuff, about what it is to fight, about what tools we have on our side even about exactly who it is we're fighting. We're going to talk more about it, about how we fight this stuff. But the whole point of tonight is I just want us to wrap our minds around what we're fighting for. Why are we even fighting? And so I want to wrap up the evening by sharing a story from Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen too. We'll start in verse one. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and uh, he's going to stop through a bunch of towns along the way and do a bunch of really cool things. But before that, he does this. The Lord, that's Jesus, appointed 72 others of his disciples, and he sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Then he tells them uh, a whole bunch of other things. He says stuff like, like, Wherever someone receives you, embrace it. Receive, uh, embrace their reception, embrace their hospitality, and, and when they receive you, heal the sick of that town. What? 
And then tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. And then he says, if you enter a town and are not welcomed, leave that town, letting them know the same thing. The kingdom of God is near. But then tell them it will not go well for you if you turn your back on it. I just side note again, as a dad, one of the hardest things is to punish your child. But you do it sometimes out of anger. Just be real. You're like, oh my gosh, stop yelling. But most of the time, hopefully, it's truly because I love him. Because I love her. I have a son and a daughter. And the, and the hard part about that is, is that ultimately, why do I do these things? Well, it's because I, I just need to tell them, like, it's not going to go well for you. Why am I trying to correct you? Why am I trying to call you into this? Because if you don't do X, it's not going to go well for you. Or if you do why, it's not going to go well for you. Life will not go well for you. If we reject the kingdom of God, life won't go well for us. Okay, side note over. Finally, he says to them this. He says, anyone who listens to you, he's talking to the disciples he's sending out. Anyone who listens to you is listening to me. He who rejects you is rejecting me and the father who sent me. So these disciples go out in the authority and name of Jesus. And so that means they have power to do amazing things. And when somebody's listening to them and receiving them, they're receiving the Lord. But also when somebody's rejecting them, they're rejecting the Lord. What a wonderful place to stand. I'm not getting rejected. They're rejecting the one who sent me. And when they're listening to me, they're receiving the one who sent me. That is a member of the kingdom, is it not? Jesus sends them out, and they go from town to town, and then we pick it up in verse 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, the disciples returned to Jesus excited that they had authority over demons in his name. But Jesus basically lets them know that this should not have been surprising to them. They should not be surprised by that. He has authority over Satan. And so they shouldn't be surprised that if in his name, they can have authority over demons too. But then he continues. He says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus redirects their excitement by pointing to an even bigger blessing, their salvation. Casting out demons has limited benefit in this world, but having your name written in heaven is an eternal unlimited blessing. As we move on in the coming weeks, talking about the mechanics of this fight, this battle, this war, let us not, let us not be distracted by the real victory. The one given to us by Jesus himself when he died on that cross and was raised to life. He conquered death and he bore our punishment so that we could be made right in the eyes of a holy and perfect creator. 
that we may be welcomed into his kingdom, getting a foretaste of it in this mortal body before we know it in full in eternity. Any, any victory we have in this spiritual war is on account of God's power and generosity and not ourselves. This battle that we're going to be talking about, this battle that we are in, that you are, many of you are in right now. All of us are in, but some of you are feeling it. You're feeling the weight of it. I want to encourage you, Jesus has authority over that. He is not weak. He is stronger than it, and he is on your side. Secondly, I want to encourage you this. This battle, it's not about our glory. It's not about us being some sort of like spiritual gladiators marching around with our trophies, the heads of the demons we've trampled on. No. It's about his kingdom. It's entirely about his kingdom. It's not about what we're fighting for. It's about what, what it's not about what we're fighting against. It's about what we're fighting for. Sorry. <laughs> it's also about who has fought for us. Guys, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is at hand. If you need help, pray. Reach out to others. We don't need to fight this battle alone. That's, that's the most wonderful thing. He doesn't leave us alone. Like he is with you, but also he's given you people around you. Don't miss out on what his kingdom looks like, the beauty of it, all that he, he offers us and extends to us, invites us into. I love just the idea that it's not just that we get to participate in it, that we get to enjoy the kingdom, but that he literally sends us out to share that kingdom with others, that as you walk, the kingdom of God is strapped to your heels and all the goodness of God, all the authority of God, all of his love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness, all of that flows with you into a world that so desperately needs it. We fight for the kingdom and that looks like a lot of different things. It's not just praying against the devil. That's a part of it for sure. But it's also how you live. It's how you walk. It's who you love and who you surrender to. So let's stand and let's praise the King of Kings. Let's praise our good and gracious God.